Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Historic setbacks in academic progress during the pandemic. The nation's report card found math scores to be at the lowest they've ever been. And reading progress scores are at levels we haven't seen since the 90s. The Supreme Court grants Senator Lindsey Graham's request to delay a subpoena. A grand jury in Georgia wants to question him about his communications after the 2020 election. A judge issues a ruling in the case of the cake decorator who refused to make a same-sex wedding cake. NTD hears from the decorator's lead attorney. In California, new police reform laws are designed to root out bad police behavior. But critics are saying instead the laws target particular groups of people. China allegedly trying to recruit spies on American soil. However, their plan took a twist when the person China tried to bribe turned out to be a double agent working for the U.S. And we hear from a civil rights nonprofit ahead of expected depositions from Dr. Anthony Fauci and other White House officials in a free speech case alleging a vast censorship enterprise between big tech and the government. Historic setbacks in academic progress for school kids during the pandemic. The so-called Nation's Report Card shows a record high decrease in math and reading improvement. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, tested hundreds of thousands of fourth and eighth graders across the United States this year. It was the first time the test had been given since 2019. It's seen as the first nationally representative study of the pandemic's impact on learning. It found that across the country, math scores saw their largest decreases ever in the history of the test, which began in the 60s. Nearly 4 in 10 8th graders failed to grasp basic math concepts. Reading scores dropped to 1992 levels, and not a single state saw a notable improvement in their average test scores. Jonathan Butcher is the Will Skillman Fellow of Education at the Heritage Foundation. He says prolonged school closures significantly affected this historic decline and that it could have been prevented. It's not just that students were away from the traditional schooling formula that they'd had for many years. It's that some districts and in particular teacher unions and special interest groups kept teachers and students from going back to in-person learning when science and families and even district officials had decided that it was safe to do so. He says that on the other hand, Catholic schools saw either no decline or only a slight decline in eighth grade math, scoring much better than the average. Catholic schools, about 90% of them, were open during the pandemic. Private schools were the first to go back to in-person learning. So by doing so, they basically saved, in some cases, students a year's worth of learning. U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona says schools have to make sure they're using the billions of dollars they received in funding from the COVID relief package passed in 2021, which Butcher agrees with. I mean, we're talking $200 billion was given to districts during the, uh, the COVID years in relief money to have about $140, $150 billion as of last spring that was unused. We certainly should be asking, wait a minute, if it was so essential for districts to have that money to prevent these results that we just saw, why didn't they use it? Secretary Cardona says this is a serious wake-up call to strengthen education efforts. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. 
Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has temporarily blocked a subpoena on South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. A Georgia grand jury served Graham with the subpoena over his alleged actions in the state after the 2020 presidential election. On Thursday, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously rejected Graham's request to temporarily block the subpoena. But Thomas, acting alone, granted the request to delay the testimony before a grand jury. In September, Thomas was assigned specific responsibility over the 11th Circuit. The grand jury is probing Graham's contact with state election officials. And on to a tax fraud trial against the Trump Organization. Jury selection is starting in New York City today. The company's longtime chief financial officer is considered to be the prosecution's star witness. He worked with Trump for almost half a century. Last year, the Manhattan DA charged Trump's real estate company and Alan Weiselberg, its then chief financial officer, with tax fraud. Weiselberg reached a plea deal to get a lesser sentence and is now set to give testimony against the organization. Trump dismissed the allegations on Truth Social, saying they're part of a witch hunt against him ahead of the midterms. After Weiselberg's plea deal, the Trump organization called him a, quote, fine and honorable man. The maximum penalty for the Trump Organization in this case is a $1.6 million fine. And zooming in on the midterm elections, California had a debate between gubernatorial candidates over the weekend. And more states are going to hold their debates later this week. California Governor Gavin Newsom debated his Republican opponent, Brian Daly, on Sunday. Newsom has fueled speculation that he might be considering a 2024 presidential run. That's because he's been running ads challenging Republican leaders in Florida and Texas, potential opponents in a presidential election. Newsom responded to such speculations during the debate. i be clear, that was a yes on four more years. Yes. Sunday's debate is the only one the candidates will have before the election. Newsom is expected to easily win re-election in November and has done little campaigning in California this year. Other states with important races will hold their own debates later this week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will debate his Democratic challenger, Charlie Crist, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday night. New York Governor Kathy Hochul will debate her Republican opponent, Lee Zeldin, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Tuesday night. During the same time, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer will debate her Republican challenger, Tudor Dixon, again. And over in Pennsylvania, Senate candidates John Fetterman, a Democrat, and Dr. Mehmet Oz, a Republican, will debate at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on Sunday, October 30th, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp will face off against Democrat Stacey Abrams in their second debate at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And California Governor Gavin Newsom recently passed two laws that screen police applicants for bias and hate group activities. Critics say the laws target Christians and conservatives. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Recently, California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, signed two law enforcement accountability reform bills into law. The laws limit who is eligible to become a peace officer. One bill screens candidates for affiliation with hate groups. The other requires that applicants are evaluated for bias against minority groups and the LGBTQ community. The goal is to prevent people who advocate oppression and violence from getting on the force. A former federal prosecutor thinks those concerns are already being addressed. Well, I think it's imperative uh, to implement training and procedures to make sure that police officers and others are impartially administering the law and performing their duties. Many of those types of trainings and procedures already exist. 
But critics are concerned that the new laws target Christians and conservatives. The Southern Poverty Law Center branded Christians and mainstream conservatives as hate groups. Daniel Greenfield, the Shulman Journalism Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, told the Daily Signal the biased law is a blank check for viewpoint discrimination, especially since it fails to identify parameters for defining bias. He warned that members of biblically traditional churches would be considered biased against sexual orientation. At a time when crime has become one of the top voter concerns leading up to the midterm election, California isn't in a position to be choosy. Matthew McReynolds, a senior staff attorney at Pacific Justice Institute, told the Daily Signal, in California cities, mass shootings, mass release of criminals back onto the streets, and brazen smash-and-grab robberies have residents living in fear. He said of the new law, it is the perfect leftist tool for canceling more decent, brave, and hardworking public safety officers. The rise in crime isn't only happening in California. Over in New York City, pension fund data revealed that over 3,000 New York police officers have submitted retirement paperwork. Newsmax reports it's expected that more than 4,000 will leave the force this year. Former federal prosecutor Zach Smith said there is an underlying cause. The rhetoric being pushed by so many on the left is that police officers are bad, that they do not follow the law, that they you know, harm minority members of their communities. He said this has been going on for two and a half years since George Floyd was killed in Minnesota. And now prosecutors in large cities are touting soft on crime policies that are encouraging criminals to commit more crimes. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. NTD reached out to Governor Newsom's office to get comment on how the laws will determine if an applicant is a member of a hate group or has biases. His office didn't get back to us. And next, we'll hear about the latest developments in a case alleging that top Biden officials colluded with social media companies to suppress speech about the Hunter Biden laptop story, the origins of COVID-19, the efficacy of masks, and election integrity. Earlier today, I spoke with the litigation counsel at New Civil Liberties Alliance, Janine Yunus, about a Friday ruling that Dr. Anthony Fauci and other White House officials must testify in the case. Janine Yunus, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're representing some of the plaintiffs in a federal case alleging government censorship via Twitter, Facebook, and Google. First off, could you summarize the case? Yes, so uh, NCLA, where I work, is representing five, uh, sorry, four private plaintiffs, two of whom um, wrote, co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration, which questioned government uh, uh, COVID restrictions. Um, the crux of the lawsuit is that the federal government has been directing social media companies to censor people who have uh, certain views on COVID. The lawsuit is actually broader and encompasses like election misinformation and the Hunter Biden laptop, but our plaintiffs are only the COVID misinformation plaintiffs. So we're alleging that that's a First Amendment violation because the government uh, is effectively using private parties to accomplish its censorship aims. And a federal judge has ruled that Dr. Anthony Fauci and other White House officials must testify in a case. How significant is that? 
Uh, it's pretty significant. It's rare for uh, high-level, high-ranking government officials to be deposed or for a judge to order that that's warranted. And the reason that we were able to show that it is is that the, we had earlier, the judge had ordered discovery. So we got lots of email communications uh, between the federal officials and the um, tech companies showing an orchestrated campaign where the government was really directing the social media companies, telling them what to do, what kind of post to censor, in some cases, even who to censor. And so the judge found that that was an extraordinary enough uh, situation and enough to establish a First Amendment violation. And so said we had the right to, um, you know, sort of seek more information. And there's there are indications in the emails that there were phone calls and Zoom meetings. So we want to know what happened at those meetings that are not, you know, they're not written down. And Dr. Fauci has denied censoring big tech, but as you mentioned, emails between top government officials and big tech seem to show otherwise. So what can we expect from these depositions then? Well, <laughs> I can't, we don't know. Um, I'll be very curious. I mean, of course, what we're interested in learning about is the extent and degree of the government's involvement and nature of the government's involvement. Um, we already know that it's quite significant, uh, that there was really a sort of a vast censorship enterprise. I think there's enough right now to establish a First Amendment violation for the court to hold that. But, you know, we obviously want to know if there's even more if this went even further. So, um, you know, we want to be able to question them about, about that. So do you think that there's an opportunity here to rethink the First Amendment in the context of censorship surrogacy? And what do you think could be done or should be done to protect free speech in the age of big tech? That's an excellent question, and I think that's sort of what this case is all about. I mean, there's no precedent for this for obvious reasons because we never really had social media before. And until uh, you know this era, the past few years, there really hasn't been sort of an um, orchestrated censorship to take down certain viewpoints. You know, it's mostly been limited to people who say, for instance, anti-Semitic things or racist things or or that kind of uh, material. So this is just new territory, and I think it's really important to establish that the government can't use these private companies. The government can't be involved in telling them, you know, who who, who can uh, be heard and who has to be silenced. Thank you so much, Janine Yunus, Litigation Counsel for the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The Justice Department called out China for bribing a U.S. government employee. But the attempt to steal secrets failed when the employee turned out to be a double agent. NTD's Iris Tao has more. The Justice Department and the FBI today announced charges for three major cases, calling out the Chinese regime for obstructing justice and undermining freedoms here in the U.S. Let's hear what FBI Director Christopher Wray has to say at a press conference today. In all three of these cases, and frankly in thousands of others, we've found the Chinese government threatening established democratic norms and the rule of law as they work to undermine U.S. economic security and fundamental human rights including those of Americans. According to the Justice Department, in one of the cases, two intelligence officers working for the Chinese Communist Party approached a U.S. government employee. The goal was to obtain secret information about charges against Huawei, a major Chinese telecommunications company. The CCP agents paid bribes to the employee and were given documents they thought had what they wanted. But it turned out... The insider flipped the script on the defendants by working not for them, but for Team America. And of course, the documents were fake. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland talking about it. The government of China sought to interfere with the rights and freedoms of individuals in the United States and to undermine our judicial system 
that protects those rights. They did not succeed. And in another case, several CCP intelligence officers were charged with trying to steal sensitive technologies in the U.S. using the cover of an academic institute. They're also accused of interfering with protests here that Garland said would have been embarrassing to the Chinese government. And in the third case, a group of seven harassed and threatened a naturalized U.S. citizen for years. The defendants threatened the victim, saying that, quote, coming back and turning herself in is the only way out and said it would be, quote, endless misery for the defendant and son to defend themselves. The White House today didn't comment on the cases other than saying that the DOJ has a standard process for notifications of law enforcement actions. The press secretary, however, mentioned that the U.S. is willing to cooperate with China in areas such as climate change, adding that it's important to keep the conversations between the two countries going. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And a judge has ruled that a cake decorator who refused to design a same-sex wedding cake will not have to violate her religious beliefs. The cake artist was facing a possible court order that would have forced her to make the cake. NTD's Jason Perry hears from the lead attorney in the case. A California court has ruled in favor of a cake decorator who refused to make a wedding cake for a lesbian couple because she said it would have violated her Christian beliefs. If the judge had not ruled in her favor, she could have been forced to make cakes for same-sex weddings. I think it's important to keep in mind that the court is not saying that you don't have to serve gay people. That's the way the opposition wants to spin it. I spoke with Charles LeMandry of the Thomas More Society. He was the lead attorney for Kathy Miller, the cake decorator who refused to make the same-sex wedding cake, citing her faith. Uh, it's only someone who was asked to express a message through their work. So uh, you can't not serve uh, gay people just like you can't uh, not serve uh, a person of a particular religion or a person of a particular race in a restaurant or any place else. You still have to do that. Of course, the law protects that. Uh, but when it comes to speaking, you can't compel someone to speak a message they disagree with. And that includes creating an artistic work. The court held that it was not discriminatory under California's anti-discrimination laws for Miller to follow her conscience. She was entitled to decline because she accommodated same-sex couples with another baker who was happy to make cakes for their weddings. LeMandry said when the news got out, the couple got the wedding cake for free and became celebrities in the gay community. Our client, on the other hand, received uh, hundreds of, of very negative uh, phone calls, uh, gay pornography sent to their computers. Uh, three of their employees quit within the first two weeks because of uh, threats. One of their employees was attacked, uh, leaving the business at night after they received threats that they would be attacked. Uh, so uh, it's been a horrific experience for a client for five years, but she felt as a matter of conscience that she had to see this through to the end, not just for her own rights, but the rights of all Americans. He went on to say that this case is an example that shows people they need to stand up for their rights. Jason Perry, NTD News. And coming up, Rishi Sunak will become Britain's new prime minister after both of his rivals pull out of the leadership contest. But more after this short break.
Rishi Sunak is now leader of the Conservative Party after both Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt, his rivals in the British leadership race, backed out. Johnson pulled out despite saying that he had enough support from MPs. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more on this. With Boris Johnson pulling out of the leadership contest on Sunday and Penny Morden stepping back just minutes before the deadline, Rishi Sunak is now the leader of the Conservative Party and the soon-to-be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Sunak said he was humbled and honoured to be the next Prime Minister. We now need stability and unity and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together. The former Chancellor was the clear front-runner in the contest. In a public statement on Sunday, Johnson announced he pulled out of the race, saying, You can't govern effectively unless you have a united party in Parliament. Mordaunt bowed out of the race as she failed to get the 100 nominations by the 2pm deadline. Sunak's ascendancy from MP to PM is the fastest in modern political history. He first won the constituency of Richmond in North Yorkshire in 2015, just seven years ago. His rise to the top job hasn't been without hitches, though, having been fined alongside Johnson for breaching coronavirus rules, as well as the scandals surrounding his wife's taxes. Sunak will be formally appointed as Prime Minister in a handover of power overseen by the King within the coming days. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Kentucky forward Oscar Shibway and Gonzaga big man Drew Timmy were unanimous selections to the AP's preseason All-American team released on Monday. The duo were joined by North Carolina center Armando Baycott as well as Houston guard Marcus Sasser and Indiana's Trace Jackson Davis. Shibway is the first reigning National Player of the Year since North Carolina's Tyler Hansbro back in 2008 to return for another season. The 260-pound big man who started his career at West Virginia averaged 17 points a game while leading the NCAA in rebounds and more than 15 for contest. In pro basketball news, Brittany Griner's appeal is set to be heard Tuesday. The WNBA star's lawyers says she, quote, does not expect miracles at the hearing. A reversal seems extremely unlikely, but her lawyers are hoping to lessen her sentence. Griner was given back in August nine years in prison for drug possession charges after being arrested at a Moscow airport in February. Griner said it was an honest mistake and pled guilty to the charges. Although a prisoner swap has been offered for her release, the White House has said it has not received a productive response from Russia. Meanwhile, in sports tonight, 16 NBA teams are in action this evening, including the Orlando Magic featuring number one overall pick Paolo Banquero. The 6-foot, 10-inch big man is averaging 23 points and nearly 9 rebounds a game thus far. The Magic will be taking on the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. In the NHL, six games are on the schedule, and that includes the St. Louis Blues, who are the only team left with an unblemished record, taking on the Winnipeg Jets. And finally, in the NFL, the Patriots and Bears square off in New England on Monday Night Football. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And lastly, while space for most people can be experienced only with their feet on the ground, a rare few get to feel what it's like beyond the Earth's atmosphere. 
and one company is offering that feeling of weightlessness to customers. NTD's Jackie Rios went for a ride to experience what zero gravity is like. Some of us grew up wanting to be an astronaut and wonder what being in space is like. Well, we visited a company who will give you the astronaut experience without going to space. That company is called Zero-G. It was founded over 20 years ago by a NASA astronaut. He created a plane for consumers to experience zero gravity. It's the only company certified by the FAA to do so. CEO Matt Goad described the flight's affordability, relatively speaking. This is an accessible experience. It's not cheap, but it's accessible. To go up on Virgin Galactic, I think it's a half a million, Blue Origin in the millions, obviously to go on SpaceX in the 50 plus million. So for about $8,500, people can have the exact same experience that astronauts have in their training program, and astronauts come and do this. So it's, again, it's not cheap, but I would call it accessible. Before Zero-G came to Long Beach, California, the organization Space Kids Global held a contest to send one lucky kid up on the plane. Goad was there to accompany the contest winner. My mom told me about a contest, like a writing contest, where the prize was to earn a spot on Zero-G, and I thought that would be really cool for, um, for my dream job. Space Kids Global founder and an official astronaut Sharon Hagel mentioned Zero-G is a great experience to bring to children. It's the closest thing we have on Earth for you to fly like an astronaut. I would suggest that they stay tuned. We're hoping to make this an annual event and there'll be other competitions that they can sign up with Space Kids Global. Zero-G travels to different locations around the United States and gives non-astronauts the chance to experience zero gravity. People can book a flight through their website. On the day of the flight, Zero-G provides customers with a uniform, socks, merchandise, and live food. This is my first time. I would love to experience microgravity and practice some yoga maneuvers and some breath work. Absolutely. I think, you know, with long-term space travel, uh, being calm, uh, meditating, I think there's a lot of benefits that we can learn on orbit. Weightlessness is not just for NASA anymore. With a company like Zero-G, one can experience what zero gravity is like. Jackie Reels, NTD News, Long Beach, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.